If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. Hey, this is Denisha and Erin. Today we have a special episode for you. This is what we call our reference show. So sit back. We're just going to talk about the terms. Essentially, as we continue to build this podcast, there are going to be a lot of words that folks may not know. And this show is for you to just tune back into if you ever feel lost with anything that we have to say. Know that it's not all encompassing, but rather the words that we know will come up very frequently. So a lot of times we know information, we just don't have the words for it. And it's good to note that language does change. So even the things that we define tonight, they might change. They may not be the same from what you learned before, or they might be different tomorrow, but that's just how language works. Yeah, I know, Denisha, you've, uh, you've taught me a lot of these words um, and you're still the expert. So I'm gonna uh, refer to you on a lot of these, just so you know. <laughs> No expert, just, you know, <laughs> another person trying to figure all this out, but um... without a doubt. All right. So let's, all right. So let's start this off. So the first one that we're going to talk about is the word oppression. So why don't you give us a rundown on what that, what that term means? Okay. Um, I definitely think it's good that we're starting here. I think a lot of the conversations that folks have, we tend to talk about privilege um, a lot, um, but it's really important to center marginalized individuals and center their their stories, their experiences, um, especially when privilege takes up a lot of space and a lot of conversation in general. To define oppression, um, it's the combination of prejudice and institutional power, which creates a system that discriminates against some groups. And we label these groups as target groups or marginalized groups. And um, yeah, so an example of that would be Uh, Classes like depending on race, sex, gender, sexuality, um, ability status, class, um, and religion. And folks that are in these oppressed groups typically have control that's been exerted over them by a dominant identity group that has limited their rights, their freedoms, and their access to basic resources such as healthcare, education, employment, and housing. Right. This is where we can talk about like the isms, right? So like racism, mm-hmm. sexism, heterosexism, um, heterosexism, sorry, mm-hmm. um, ableism. Yeah. All of those that, uh, you know, that um, some may be re- really familiar with, uh, but there are other um, ageism things that I wouldn't even think, you know, that you were kind of yeah. talking about for sure. The one of the things about oppression is it can be um, 
seen, measured in many different ways. For example, like on a personal level, just talking about like what people value, their beliefs. Another um, way is institutional, of course, the rules and policies that have been created, um, cultural, what is beautiful, what is seen as beautiful, what's the truth, what's dictated as right. Um, and so recognizing that oppression isn't all about uh, the actual policies that are in place. It's not all about politics, um, but it definitely has a lot to do with that for sure. But oppression is seen, felt, and measured in many different ways. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's really good to kind of identify some of those different ways to measure that. Uh, and something that we wanted to do with the show, because we're combining social justice and behavior analysis, is to be able to provide these uh, definitions of these terms, but then also to put them in a behavioral language as well. So Denisha has like outlined these great definitions for like oppression in this behavioral term, which I think is just fantastic, you know? Yeah, um, I think one thing recognizing that we as behavior analysts, like we have our own culture um, sure. And so there are specific ways that we engage with one another, uh, ways that we talk and um, our language is reinforced by one another, obviously. Um, I think it's super important to think about language, especially <laughs> how language works in the larger world. And sometimes language can be um, uh, used as a tool of control or to leave certain people out. So even though we're going to be doing this podcast where we're talking about language in, in a behavior analytic way, recognizing that um, expecting folks to have a behavior analytic term for everything might also be talking about certain biases that we might hold in certain ways that we're keeping other people out. Um, so just keeping that in mind. But I went ahead and tried to define oppression. And so far what I have, and this is a working definition, I think that there are plenty of folks who could probably do, do us a, a great service by working on it a little more. But right now I have aversive control procedures utilized against individuals belonging to at least one particular identity group that falls outside of dominant identity groups, such as white, Protestant, rich, heterosexual, able-bodied males, and this includes, but is not limited to, people of color, non-religious folks, Muslims, Jewish, poor people, gay, lesbian, disabled women. Um, also, another way to think about it is limiting availability of reinforcers um, or controlling the access to those things. Yeah, I think that's really important where you're talking about limiting availability or controlling access uh, to reinforcers. I'm really glad you put that in there because that was something that... Um... And then using the aversive control procedures to to then limit that um, availability, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, whether it's just access to opportunities, um, I think is a big one, to be honest, especially in our field, for sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And so I think on the other side of oppression, like I said, the the one thing that we always center or tend to center a lot, and I and I'm definitely it's necessary to to talk about privilege for sure. I think that's how we also continue to move the needle. Um, but Aaron, do you want to pick up privilege, or I can definitely go into it if you want me to as well. I I can touch on privilege. You've you've taught me a lot about privilege, um, and it's something that I have. Uh, started to really dig into and learn about my own privileges. So privilege, when we talk about that, it's um, it operates on this personal or interpersonal, cultural and institutional levels, and it gives it uh, advantages, favors, and benefits to members of these dominant groups that we're kind of talking about. 
at the expense of members of the targeted group. So if you go back to the, you know, the, the oppression definition that we just had, you know, we listed out all of these identities um, on two different sides. And there are these ones that kind of have privilege. And then there are others that, that, um, that don't, and are members of these targeted groups. And um, it's important to kind of recognize that you can have different types of identity, uh, you know, privilege uh, in different ways. So I can be privileged because I'm white, but I can also not be privileged because I, you know, would um, identify as transgender, you know, so there's different ways that that can show up uh, in your life. Um, and we're going to get on intersectionality in a minute. You kind of touched yeah. on it there, but it's uh, really important to recognize where you do have privilege and in, in other ways where you might be considered a marginalized or target group. So what would be the behavioral definition for privilege, Erin? All right. So the behavioral definition. So this is when reinforcement is available based on socially determined, so verbally defined uh, membership to at least one particular dominant identity group, including but not limited to, like we talked about, white, Protestant, rich, heterosexual, able-bodied male. Um, you can also have a low or no response effort to gaining access to resources or to, uh, to these reinforcers and then also varied and flexible reinforcements. So, you know, positive and negative as well. Yeah. I think that, um, is a great start to talk about what privilege, um, might be in a behavioral way. Um, another component of privilege and oppression that, I try to make sure to talk about as much as possible, even if we just are only mentioning it now, but it's internalized oppression. And that's one thing that um, people might skip over in the conversation. Um, but I think of it in ways where you'll talk to someone that is from a marginalized group. And some of the things that they'll say will sound just like what the majority of folks have told them about their own groups of, of of folks. And so um, we can define internalized oppression as uh, the process in which people in the target group um, make oppression internal and personal by believing the lies, prejudices, or stereotypes about them. Um, and I think that the members of the target groups then exhibit internalized oppression when they alter their attitudes behavior, speech, and self-confidence to reflect the stereotypes and norms of the dominant identity group. And that can be low self-esteem, self-doubt, even self-loathing, but that also can be projected um, outwardly as fear, criticism, distrust of one's own identity group. And um, I think a way that we can think about that uh, behaviorally would be essentially just acceptance or adherence to the rules or the information that's been provided by the majority group. And that acceptance creates destructive feelings and behaviors towards oneself and or members of that targeted group, essentially almost the same, but. Yeah. I think what you said there was really important were rules. It's kind of these rules that are established, these guidelines that if you, uh, you know, identify or you're part of a certain group, this means that you are a certain way. And so you're, you know, through your experiences, you kind of, you, like you're saying, you're internalizing those things. They become a part of who you are, whether you want it to or not. I think that mm -hmm. was really important for you, for you to note. Yeah. I mean, we all, if, you, if you're part of this world, especially here in America, like we all learn the same information. So it's only normal, I think, for folks to kind of take in that information about themselves because that's what 
the information was intended to do for people to take it, believe it. Um, and so you see it happen a lot. And I think that's why, you know, when we start to talk to varying folks from the same uh, group, recognizing that not you might be part of the same group, but you don't believe or do everything the same way. Like there, it's not a monolith. Um, and just because you hold the same types of um, oppression doesn't mean that you experience it the same way. That's awesome. Yeah. As far as experiencing it a different way, definitely. Yeah. All right. So we've had oppression. Then the flip side was privilege. Mm -hmm. And now we have internalized oppression. All right. What's up next? So we mentioned groups, right? Like social mm -hmm. groups. Um, essentially what that means is it's a group of people who share common social identity and they're set apart by these socially defined boundaries or identities. And we mentioned some of them earlier when it came to race, sex, religion, class, ability, status, et cetera. So that would be yeah. a social group. Yeah. Does that, how does that kind of connect to one's identity? Is that, I mean, um, are those groups part of your identity? Okay. So essentially it is, my identity is this. And then my, I, my social group would be those who also share that same idea. Got it. So, um, so whether it's I have a social group of women um, mm -hmm. or I have a social group of black folks, like this, these are my social groups based on these identities um, that I also identify with or carry. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So then the next thing we have is the term ally. Um, this is probably a term that, that people have heard pretty frequently. Uh, and this is someone who supports the rights and the dignity of individuals and different identity groups um, on their own. And so somebody who's going out and kind of joining and supporting, uh, you know, in different ways. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of what that might look like in, in contrast with then the second, the next you know, thing that we're going to talk about, the next uh, term we're going to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. I almost think of like an ally is a, a little bit more passive in it. Would you agree? Yeah. I'm, the way that I see allies, I, I see them as the people that are like our friends. Like, I like you, but I see, actually, you know what? I see it kind of as someone who just shows up and shows face and says, I really appreciate you for who you are. And then that's it. And we go about our business. And yeah. That was a nice exchange. Right. Exa exactly. It was a nice exchange. It's those people who, whenever I post something uh, pretty vulnerable on Facebook or something like that, they're the ones that are right there that are saying, oh, this is fantastic. Thanks for sharing. And then they like disappear, you know? Mm -hmm. So being an ally is, it, it feels good. Right. But that's in contrast to the the term that we're going to talk about next, which is, um, you introduced me to this term and I love it. It's accomplice or a mm -hmm. change agent, right? Why don't yeah. you, why don't you talk about accomplice? I get excited about All this right. term. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to throw in another one for you too. I think they're all the same, but accomplice change agent and co-conspirator. Co um, yeah. So I consider an accomplice as or a change agent or co-conspirator as someone who works to dismantle oppressions in institutions, um, works to address the role of themselves in upholding and maintaining the system of oppression. So the difference between 
ally, an accomplice, or a co-conspirator, or change agent is the behavioral aspect, your actions. What are you doing? Um, it's great to know that I have a friend in you and that you appreciate my existence on this earth, but I need to know, are you going to show up and rally for this existence? Like, you might um, appreciate seeing me, but if you don't care if the system that is built um, to possibly kill me or destroy me, and that could be physically, mentally, or spiritually. If you don't care about that enough to show up for me, um, then you know it only goes but so far. And so I think for the accomplished change agent co-conspirator, those are the folks that are really going to help to do the work. Um, and it's it's very action oriented. It's really putting your money where your mouth is, essentially. Yeah, I always talk about uh they take on some of the burden that we mm -hmm. have you know we are not alone in the fight that we have to overcome the oppression um that we may have have an experience and they're right there like in stride with you um taking on some of that so you don't have to shoulder shoulder all of that on your own that's the way i yeah. kind of uh you know ex experience that um in my own life is that person who's there that's speaking up for me. So I don't always have to be that person. Yeah. In the social justice world, we say it's putting your bodies on the line. Like when we're out there on the front lines for whatever specific issue that we're talking about or rallying for that day, our, our accomplices are putting their bodies on the line. There are threats that are made apparent when you do things like that. I mean, you can be ousted of any type of social power or whatever um, engagements that you are part of, like you can be ousted from there. You could be put in jail. You don't know what the ramifications could actually be, but I specifically think about folks who do social justice works on the front line. And I mean, their threats are physical, emotional. Right. That's right. a lot. And so for an accomplice to say, you know what? This might not have been my fight, but this is my duty. And um, there's something really beautiful about that, I think. Um, and being really intentional, too, about keeping those type of people around you, like the ones who are willing to do that um, extra work. Those are the ones that truly matter. I, I think in, in my mind, when I'm thinking about like social justice, um, in, in terms of social justice and showing up and activating, um, it's great to have people who encourage you to continue to move along, but really those people who are going to help you further your, um, your cause or further your existence. Cause it really is just about the lived experiences and the existences or the existence that, um, of us being here. If you're going to help me further that, then I, I think that that is what truly matters for me and, and making sure to keep those people and, and being grounded and knowing that those people do exist. And they do exist. You're right. They are. They do. Excellent. Yeah, that's um, that's probably one of my favorite terms that we have here. I could tell you get really excited about that term, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so moving along, the next one we have is diversity. Again, another term that uh, a lot of people have probably heard. And this talks about all the variants of identity, skill, appearance, ability, and anything Um and it, you know, it can be with anything, people, animals, fruit. <laughs> I like that you put fruit in there. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason behind that. <laughs> I want to hear it. What's, what's the reason? So the, the reason that I put that um, when we talk about diversity, um, 
is that it could be anything, right? Diversity literally can be anything. And so I think diversity is a hot box word. And we use it a lot because it's it's something that has some type of social validity. Like folks really know what diversity means when you say it in general, because it could be anything. Um, but we're talking about diversity, just knowing that there are limitations to that. Like diversity is more than faces on a brochure. Mm-hmm. Um, it is like, I don't care about how many people of color you have in your workplace or in your organization. If those people of color are not safe to speak um, in the ways that feel comfortable to them, if they are still having issues with uh, equal pay. So, you know, that's the limitation to when we start to talk about diversity and that being our end goal. For me, it's more than diversity. So that's why I made sure to put fruit, to just talk about like, you know, it's really just a saying, let's throw different people together. In, yeah. In my head. Yeah. Yes. And it's a word that people throw out there that can say, you know, we have a diverse uh, workforce or something like that. And it's kind of one of those plugs. It's like, yep, this is us. Then we've hit certain quotas, essentially, you know, if right. you're thinking about like, um, universities or something like that. And they want to make sure that they get their, their quota so they can look like they're diverse or something like that. I'm not saying they have quotas, but in the, in the past, it's been like, I mean, I remember applying for grad schools and things like that. And I knew that being a white female, um, had a set of challenges, but I, you know, they, they were always looking for, for something, something extra, like what makes you different? What skill set do you have that sets you apart from everybody else? And, but diversity, you're, you're right is um, it can be limited. And it's like that uh, faces on a brochure. That's kind of the perfect way. It's like, let's make sure that we target every, and now even it's like, um, I feel like when I go to conferences and now, and it's part of my own bias too, is like now I'm looking for diversity in like the speakers and I expect to see that. Right. And it's like, Mm -hmm. is that what they're trying to do is trying to make it look like that's a value for them, which it may be. And that's great. It's great. But it's again, like you're saying to what, to what end, you know, is it, is it a value or is it just a kind of, you know what I'm trying to say though? Kind of just like, just to show and t- it's like to save face a little bit, but I, I know that I'm like a cynic or sound, I sound like a cynic in terms of like diversity and talking about the limitation. Um, there are limitations, but it's definitely necessary, like you said. So like if I do go to a conference and being able to see more people who are from varying backgrounds, like that's, that's super important. It's especially important to me to also see folks who look like me being part of a minority class or um, a marginalized group. So that's necessary. But then also it's what do you, what else needs to happen besides diversity? Right. And so I think, right. Yeah. We'll talk more about that at some point. Right. And I was like, how far do you want to get into this? Cause I could ask questions and questions. I could keep going, but I think, yeah, yeah I think you're right. Just for the terms. Let's get right. It. Like that's what diversity is. Okay. And next. <laughs> All right. So what is next? All right. Culture. Mm. Culture. All right. So culture is the systems of knowledge that are shared by a relatively large group of people. That's a pretty, very, very broad term. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the behavioral term or I can? Sure. What do you think about that? So the behavioral term, actually, this one was defined by, and I should have looked up the pronunciation before we did this. 
and I am sorry because I know that I'm going to butcher this, um, but I am going to try it anyway. Um, Sugai et al. 2012 um, de defined it as the extent to which a group of individuals engage in overt and verbal behavior reflecting shared behavioral learning histories serving to differentiate the group from other groups and predicting how individuals within the group act in specific setting conditions. So um, I think the thing about culture, it really just talks about that learning history, the shared learning history. I think that's really important in this quote. Um, and then what that, how that can impact our behavior based on our shared learning histories. And also the thing about culture is like engaging in certain behaviors um, that pay off for the, the group, right? Mm -hmm. And also recognizing that even though you have a cultural identity, like we engage in behaviors that might have a payoff for our cultural group, but then also as an individual as well, like those two don't have to exist apart from one another, um, but just recognizing that there is some interlocking that occurs. Definitely, and I think the thing too is when people hear culture, oftentimes they attribute that to like race or ethnicity and mm. that uh, becomes the default for culture. And that's not necessarily the case because that first definition just say, said relatively large group of people. And then you're saying, you know, um, shared experiences with the same kind of behavioral learning here, histories. That That's a, a really wide, wide range. You know, that's not limited, like I said, to, to race or ethnicity or a religion or something like that. You know, it's it's very broad. Yeah. Oh, I said it earlier. We're behavior analysts. We have our own culture. Without we absolutely a do. Without yeah. a <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. All right. So you you mentioned intersectionality earlier a little right. bit. You didn't say the words, but um, definitely is important to talk about. Um, do you want to go ahead and try to define it? And let me actually say that um, intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Kernshaw just to give you a little backstory. Um, it's really not funny, but just tells you how life works. Like she coined it, um, I think back in the eighties or late nineties and didn't get her references or due until it was said in the women's March. And so then people started to say like, serious? Oh, what's this? Yeah. Like, like, the most like the women's later. march yes <laughs> that just happened like yeah in 2017 2017 are you serious yes. didn't get her due until 2017 and it's like it, it, it's really interesting um just to know how that how that happens um but she is the she coined intersectionality but also before her i also uh, want to make sure to talk about um the kumbahi women's collective they actually were doing that work before Kimberly Crenshaw was. And it was specifically about um, being black, womanhood, and being lesbian uh, because they're, um, they felt like that wasn't being addressed. Um, the intersections and the differences and the commonalities that are weaving between these identities. And so they actually were the first people to kind of think about intersectionality, intersectionality. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. Oh my gosh, decades later. I couldn't imagine like having a term and then it not being recognized. I wonder, we'll have to talk, we'll have to have like an episode on intersectionality, 
just totally yeah. like itself, uh, you know, and um, okay. So defining intersectionality, the interconnected nature of uh, like these social categorizations that we were talking about. So race, class, gender, um, as they apply to a given individual or group. Uh, and it's kind of regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of uh, discrimination or disadvantage. Right. Mm -hmm. So we've got all these different um, categorizations and how um, like one person, uh, you know, all of those different um, identities kind of intersect. Right. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, and Kimberly, I want to read off her quote, actually, like um, from her paper when she coined it. Cool. Um, she essentially the, the reason behind it was. And I quote, because the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism, any analysis that does not take in, does not take intersectionality into account cannot sufficiently address the particular manner in which black women are subordinated. And I think um, the emphasis needs to be added there, especially um, I was talking about language and what happens to language and how it changes. Um, that's a perfect example because intersectionality was coined by two collective groups of black women, specifically about the black woman experience. And what we know about it today um, in 2019 is that it's to talk about any intersection. Mm -hmm. And so that's just, that goes to show like how language changes. And then also how sometimes language um, is hijacked by folks in academia and folks that are not, right? Um, Kimberly Crenshaw was an academic, but, um, you know, different people have the ability to take language and then change it to, to match or fit another criteria. And so um, I just want to put that one out there too. Um, I think it's very, very interesting that the two groups that we're talking about that intersection were happened to be two Black women um, or a group of Black women and then Kimberly Crenshaw as one. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. We'll have to um, share that paper. You'll have to. Yeah. I want to read that. Show notes. Right. I'm going to put something Sh in the show notes. <laughs> show notes. I've always wanted to say that. Oh, we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> cool. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So anything else on intersectionality? Mm -mm, I think that... that's it. I think that's a good okay. starting point for our listeners. I do really like in that quote where it says that if you're not taking the analysis of that intersectionality into account, then you can't sufficiently address anything because mm -hmm. you're not looking at it as a whole, right? If you're only taking bits and pieces um, of a person or a group, then that's, um, that's an issue. That's a huge issue. Yeah. So I yeah. like that. I really like that. Okay, so I had added two others because these are terms that I hear you use. And I know that like it might be common knowledge as to what they are, uh, but it might not be for everybody. And so uh, the first one I had was dismantle because that's something you say quite often and I love it. And I've started to kind of put it into my language a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. It's not fluent yet, but it will be. Uh, but I really like how you wrote this. And this is to discontinue policies and conditions that keep... Um, individuals marginalized, which then leads mm -hmm. to the next term, which is marginalized. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So when I first heard that term, I was like, marginalized. I understand margins that I kind of need context clues and put that all together. And I was like, wow, that's a really powerful term um, to, to define these, um, 
to uh, you know to explain these groups who have been denied access and kind of pushed to the margins of uh, social, mm-hmm. economic, or compl- political involvement. Like they don't have a voice, right? You know, if what's needing to be heard is directly in the center of like this targeted bullseye, they are way far out on the on the 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 outskirts. Um, and the, what I imagine to be like the margins and, and they're not, they're being denied access to, to being essentially a voice. Did I get that? was that. (laughs) I love the fact that you incorporated the bullseye. I think that's a good visual to talk about marginalization and who's at the center, especially just keeping that into, um, taking that into consideration, like who's at the center and, um, all, everyone else falls on the outside. Definitely. it's interesting. And we can, I mean, we can, again, we'll have more talk on this, but um, it, I know, and I won't get into too much detail, but you and I have experienced a privilege walk together um, mm-hmm. at, you know, at, at a conference. And so um, I imagine that, but in like a circle kind of aspect. And it's like all the, the privilege, all the easy stuff, all the stuff you want access to is right there in the middle and the privilege is what kind of it's like this magnet right and it's easy to get there and you know it's just it's hard for everybody on the outside they can't they can't quite get um in there because of all these barriers and you know um so yeah cool i'm glad the bullseye worked <laughs> awesome that did um okay. did you have anything else that we need to add i think this was a good starting place for folks um who are just joining us and they can refer back to it whenever they need to Yeah, exactly. And I think the more that we talk about some of these things and the more context that we bring up some of these terms in, uh, we'll have to, uh, they may need like refreshers. So coming back to this episode can be really good. Um, If I I would say if we do have terminology that we use that you all don't know, like let us know and we'll, we'll create another episode like this. I'd love to have like a part two. I also thought about, um, one an episode where we have like a political correct language so how Mm. to like if we're talking about culture or identity or things like that like how what is the best way to kind of communicate some of these um things you know i don't know if political correct is the the right (laughs) i don't know if that's like the right word to use or i don't know you're gonna tell (laughs) (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i did tell me see this is what's great you're gonna tell me it's a learning (laughs) culture of humility all right that's for another show, but um, yeah. yeah, definitely. The language does matter for sure. Um, okay. And and folks hate when you police their political correctness. Um, uh, but yes we should not. definitely get into that. Not, I mean, not me. Yeah, I definitely think that there's another way that we can think about that. But okay, um, yeah, we'll we'll get into that another day. But I for think sure. I'm excited. Reference yeah. show. Reference I think that show was a lot of good one. information. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Okay, so that marks the end of our reference show. I just want to thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us. And make sure you tune in for the next show. Hey, it's Denisha. And Erin. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a 
Pretty Easy Podcasts. So Pretty Easy Podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. (laughs) Or their desire. It's the issue with the environment um, and the structure, right? And so um, I I just, I don't know. You can learn a lot from the history of... Absolutely. uh, (laughs) Well, and I'll see this... I'll see this from folks that are attempting to be affirming too. So there'll be a lot of people that are really coming from an intention uh, that's good and will have impact that's incredibly damaging. Um, So uh, with your bathroom example, we could see a behavior analyst say, well, see, I'm shaping up a behavior of you utilizing the washroom that aligns with your actual gender identity. I'm doing you a service. Uh, We're going to work on pushing through those feelings of being unsafe. Um, when we link, look at some of uh, Winkler's research uh, around the same time as Rikers and Lobos as well, they were taking a look at a different approach, which they felt was more affirming, uh, which was using skills groups to build the capacity to be more assertive in one's sexuality and gender identity. Um, and they thought, well, if we can just teach you some self-assertion, then you'll be fine. Um, and they actually noted some study limitations for themselves that they thought that the trials that they had, like the probes for safety, uh, were so minuscule that they weren't going to get any meaningful data and uh their most like basic level step one uh was so aversive to so many participants that they had flat out refusal to engage in it um it was things like um going up to a stranger and telling them that you're gay or going up to a police officer and disclosing your identity um and these researchers could not see how uh, this would not be a beneficial step for folks. Um, complete ignorance to all of the systemic issues and the potential danger and the potential harm and thought, well, if we just shape up resilience, uh, then you'll be fine. You'll be good to go. Uh, and in reality, that can be so potentially damaging because we're not really fully looking at the context and the environment that we're then leaving people in. I could even see that in the context of, let's say, like parent training and working with parents to help them um, like, let's say a kidney is trying to explore gender identity and we're trying to teach parents how to maybe facilitate that and how to respond, um, in, in ways that are affirming and, um, and safe. And, um, but if you go to write, like, let's say a goal, cause you're trying to insurance is covering this or whatever. Um, and let's say you write in a goal that has you working through something and doing so many tasks to work towards gender identity, but the kid's not ready to do that, you know, then what happens? Because you've written your treatment goal to be something that's forcing them into do something that they're not ready to do. And it's, it's different because we're always focused on like skills and acquisition of all these things. And um, for me, it's like, how can we acquire um, an affirming and an environment that is safe for self-advocacy and open communication and things like that? Absolutely. And so that's primarily what I think of when I think of harm reduction. Um, so this is a modality that was birthed out 
um, of folks attempting more humane ways to um, interact with and support uh, criminalized drug users. Um, but it is like so cross applicable to any sort of behavior that has the potential for harm. And there are so many behaviors that we all engage in every day that have the potential for harm. If you're out driving your car, you know, if you're crossing the street, uh, these these are things that contain some inherent risk. Um, and we all engage in them. We use seatbelts, uh, we use crosswalks, we look both ways. There are steps that we take to minimize uh, harmful impacts of these behaviors that do contain some inherent risk. Um, so I think it's so important that we're cognizant of the fact that just because a behavior has the potential to be high risk doesn't mean that it is also a valued behavior and something we should be supporting. Um, and harm reduction takes a look at any positive change. That's sort of their motto. Um, and this is something that I really wish all of behavior analysis would move toward. I think it's so cross applicable. Um, and the way that it really diverges from a lot of the programming that I see right now is um, it is centered on any positive change. And it means that we might not have goals that we would consider to be optimal goals. Um, the client's goal and the client value may not be what we personally would decide uh, is quote unquote safest in the situation or quote unquote best in the situation or quote unquote most socially valid based on our own definitions of what that means. Um, and it's willing to be able to work toward goals that maybe would be different than our own goals. Um, and I think that's something that's uh, is super rare uh, to see supported. Um, but the core of it is self-advocacy. Um, it's problem solving. It's identifying, uh, you know, one's own internal values and goals and taking a look at, um, you know, the parts of harm minimization that are actually important to a given individual. So when we think about sexual behavior, there's all sorts of potential risks and harms involved, you know, the, whether that be, you know, like STIs, uh, whether that be a potential for pregnancy, if pregnancy is unwanted in the situation, whether that be, you know, emotional harm, um, whether that be inflicting harm on others, um, you know, the potential for being assaulted or assaulting someone else is definitely a very real consideration. Um, all of these are potential harms and some of them, uh, maybe ones that clients aren't really interested in focusing on or working toward reducing. Um, others may feel a lot more pertinent. And um, it's a modality that is a lot more self-led on, on the part of the client in terms of deciding where the focus should be and what reducing harm should look like. Um, and that can feel really scary <laughs> for a practitioner, uh, for sure. Um, but uh, I, I think it's incredibly valuable when we think about, you know, centering that primary client. I want to take a moment to uh, do our second buzzword just really fast. Um, second buzzword is upswing. And we've talked a little bit about upswing. Uh, advocates, check out their work. But Warner, if you want to add anything. Sure, absolutely. Um, so a lot of the work that we do at Upswing uh, focuses primarily on research uh, and education. So we did just wrap up a lovely collaborative project taking a look at um, top surgery, uh, which would be um, essentially like chest or breast reduction or removal, um, typically for uh, transgender folks who have been assigned female at birth um, so that their bodies uh, align more closely uh, with their gender identities or the way that they wish their um, uh, bodies to appear. Uh, so that is beautiful. That's up on our website now. And uh, I was really excited that we got to collaborate on some of that work. I need to go look at that. Oh, yeah. ju and just to um, 
Warner, you all recently, I want to say within the past six months, I don't remember the exact date, but released a self-assessment um, and yes. behavior analysis and practice. Can you talk about that just briefly? Yeah, we did. Um, so that was something really lovely that we got to work on. Um, it is a self-assessment for folks uh, to engage in um, more transgender affirming behaviors uh, with their clients, with their colleagues, with their students and their supervisees. Um, so it is a pretty easy checklist to go through. Um, it goes through our ethical guidelines and then also some separate supportive behaviors as well um, and asks folks to just identify spaces where maybe they have room for growth for making themselves or their organizations a little bit more affirming. Um, I feel like a lot of the assessments that we saw that existed already had a lot to do with like implicit bias and values and feelings and perceptions. And we were having a hard time finding one that actually had like observable and measurable behaviors and things folks could engage in uh, for positive change. So that's very much where we wanted to center uh, that checklist. So one of the things when we started talking earlier, you mentioned uh, neurodivergent. Um, and in our field, we hear we have we're hearing more and more about the neurodiversity movement. Um, can you talk about how a perspective of neurodiversity differs from the more traditional view of intellectual and learning disability or mental illness and the impact of this framework on behavior analytics, sex education? Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, when we think about models for viewing disability, um, originally, um, at least uh, historically in America, our views of disabilities uh, were formed through a moral model. So any sort of uh, disability or divergence uh, was viewed as um, being a moral failing, either on the part of the individuals or the parents. Um, you weren't aligning with the current moral values of the time um, and you were being punished for it, uh, an incredibly damaging viewpoint. Uh, from there, we saw a shift to a medical model uh, that said, no, there's no sort of moral feeling happening for you. Um, it's just something that's biologically wrong with the body. Um, and this was considered a lot of progress, right? It looked like it was moving away from uh, some harmful paradigms, which it was. Um, However, this is a really problematic model, too. It suggests that there's, you know, something wrong with the individual uh, who's disabled. Um, it, and uh, it suggests that um, the fault uh, for any sort of ability to or, or lack of ability to easily move through the environment is their fault and is something that should be fixable via fixing them. Um, a really damaging message to be giving to anyone, um, but it is uh, predominantly what we still rely on in many circles. And if you're doing any sort of supports or programming um, that involves insurance billing, uh, this is something that we're using because you're using medical codes to address something that has a medical diagnosis. And it's very much viewed through this lens of working to quote unquote, fix a problem uh, within the individual. Um, as behavior analysts, we know that this is absolutely like a mentalistic fallacy, right? We're always and only ever shifting the environment. Um, uh, but it's still language that's really harmful and it's still like a paradigm that's really harmful um, and can absolutely be misrepresented. Um, and uh, I definitely feel like there is the capacity to use our science and our technology in a way that sort of like reinforces these principles that it's, it's the individual that needs to be shifting what they're doing to fit in. 
um, or to exist more easily. Um, so neurodiversity is just looking um, more at a social model instead of a medical model. So noting that any sort of um, issues that an individual faces, especially a disabled individual or a neurodivergent individual, all lie exclusively within the environment and any sort of shift that we should be making is a shift in the environment. Um, that these are social barriers, that they're often systemic social barriers, uh, that we live in a world um, that actively utilizes oppression and actively utilizes uh, constructing societies that um, create barriers for disabled and neurodivergent individuals. Um, and that before we see a real change in that, um, it's unlikely that we're going to see uh, significant shifts for our clients. Um, so this is a model that just notes that there's absolutely nothing wrong with the individual, <laughs> that if you are a neurodivergent individual or a disabled individual, that there is nothing about you that needs to be fixed. Um, it's the environment that needs shifting. I love that. And I would encourage listeners right now, too, if you haven't, to go back to one of our earlier episodes where we did a panel, um, neurodiverse panel, and it was uh, beautiful. I think was, as far as like uh, positive feedback that I've heard, I've never heard any negative feedback about our, our, our podcast yet. But as far as messages or anything coming to me or, you know, it's about that one, it's just the um, I think that got a lot of great feedback because it took exactly what you just said and and gave uh, that's what you heard from three different people um, on that podcast. So mm -hmm. I think there's beautiful. so much. Yeah, there's so many conversations that are being had right now, but many more that need to be had. And then, you know, quite frankly, the work that we need to do around it after these conversations are being had. But um, with us as, you know, analysts, a lot of times some of us are working in early intervention and we don't communicate with folks from the neural, you know, divergent neurodivergent folks or autistic individuals, we don't communicate and we don't get to hear about the work that we did with them. So of course our intentions are well, and like you were talking about intention over impact, we hear, we could hear, you know, down the line that this actually was harmful and we, you know, treated our individuals using this medical model versus, you know, we do understand that though, right. As behavior analysts, as you said, with this, the environment needs shifting, but, when it comes down to it, what are we changing? The stemming behaviors or things like that, where we're saying that this is inherently you and, and what you present is not good enough for blah, blah, blah. And so um, I, I do love the conversations that we're having because it's directly, we know 67% of our field autism. So I hope that our listeners are, you know, are able to get something. I'm able to get something from that. Um, I'm thankful to, for the fact that I've been able to work with a wide range of individuals. And like, even just recently, I have to have a conversation with um, an individual that is very aware of the anti-ABA movement and is like, what the F, you know, what's you trying to change? You trying to change me? Right. So like, how do we, ha how are we going to have those conversations with the people that we say that we, we seek to serve? Like we're here, I'm, I'm here to serve the folks that I work with um, and, and I say that as a servant leader. Um, and so are you going to listen? Are, are we going to, you know, actually sit back and um, take those words in and shift our behaviors towards them? And how can we be affirming when these conversations need to happen versus being um, the word that I'm looking for is slipping me, but kind of be oh defensive, you know, being defensive about it um, and recognizing Absolutely. that. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And well, I think it really does start with looking at our own behavior and saying, am I trying to change you? You know, (laughs) am I trying to, you know, reduce your really valuable self-stimulatory behaviors? So I have goals related to compliance. um, And oh my goodness, I could, we could do a whole separate podcast on compliance related goals and how this impacts, um, uh, you know, potential for sexual abuse later on in a client's lifetime. You know, if you're training someone that their no is not valuable, um, that their no is not to be, you know, listened to or respected to, if you punish or extinguish somebody's ability to self-advocate out of their repertoire, like what are you doing for them uh, long-term? But especially when we're thinking about the high, high rates of sexual abuse uh, with the neurodivergent populations, like how are you impacting you know, their ability to, uh, you know, protect themselves and to self-advocate against sexual advances as well. Um, and then these are such important considerations um, coming back to the medical model for sexuality and gender identity on the whole as well, too. Like, so frequently to access affirming treatment, you have to have some sort of medicalized diagnosis. Um, and if we're seeing a covariance of, you know, autism or other neurodivergence and um, being a sexual or gender minority, so frequently you're seeing multiple minority stress um, and then seeing how that's uh, impacted through the medical model. So, so frequently um, someone will not be given access to affirming treatment uh, for gender identity, or they'll be asked entirely different questions um, in a uh, sexual health assessment from their medical providers, or the sexual health assessment will be entirely skipped uh, for them. And uh, just the potential for harm and damage through these medicalized models um, at sort of that intersection of autism and neurodivergence and sexuality, gender identity, have such potential for harm. And Warner thinks so highly and so strongly about this that they wore a shirt to the podcast recording (laughs) that says noncompliance is a social skill. And I just like I have to tell everybody that I love it because I yes, every I don't even there's nothing even to add. Yes. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, And, and so eloquently and, and following that up with why that's so important. Um, uh, you know, it's I, I try when I am teaching like graduate students, like to be behavior analyst is um, to think about um, if you are having a goal of noncompliance, that's great. What are you targeting? And then I said, OK, if you're teaching a kid, generalization is a skill. Maintenance is or is a goal. Maintenance is a goal. Right. What happens when they've been taught? to comply with everything and then a stranger tries to take them or a stranger tries to touch them or somebody in their family tries to do that. And it's, you'll, you'll see in the chat be like, Oh crap. Like I've never thought about that. This is not like, nobody's saying this. And it's because like treatment plans that they're running right now, behavior analysts currently are not addressing this and it's scary. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. This is my favorite shirt. (laughs) Fully agree with the message. Noncompliance is a social skill. And I would argue that as we're eliminating compliance related goals, we should be adding noncompliance skill building because mm-hmm. the ability to say no and also uh, shaping environments where your no is honored is so crucial. Um, the ability to self-assert and to self-advocate uh, and to be able to get out of situations um, using functional communication uh, is so crucial. Yes. So, amen. Hang on real fast. Even going back to if you think about like sharing, how many sharing goals are out there and you're forcing kids like what about the kids? that's like, no, I don't want to share right now. I want to play by myself, you know, like what is wrong with that? 
are we working on their sibling also sharing? Because I guarantee you they're not, you know, but it's like we're teaching those rigid rules because this is what we're supposed to do. And I don't, it's, anyway, go ahead, Denisha. No, I was going to say, um, and, and those goals should be taught early on too. Like, we're not just talking about teaching teenagers, oh, we're going to accept your no. Like, no, you're babies, you're three-year-olds that um, we're, I have, a, you know, kids that they're, their programming is, no, I don't like that. No, don't do that. Um, and teaching the parents except they're no like this this is an advocacy skill and you want your child to have this as they grow older and and we have to be flexible in the response that we get right and and know it and it's so interesting too I'll just say this and this will be my rant maybe too for the the night but um a lot of times i've I've noticed in our field we're as rigid as the quote unquote rigid behaviors that we're trying to change from our kids. Like we have to be flexible in our presentation. And that's actually not a full rant, but that's all I want to say is like, you know, we have to be flexible in what we're seeing and and allowing folks to one advocate for themselves and then just being like, okay, this is contextually appropriate. Like, nope, you're right. We don't even have to do this right now. Thanks. Bye. But, you know, so that's my little uh, spiel to to foster flexibility within ourselves. You're going to get half a tally mark for that because that was kind of a rant, but not it really. Kind of, it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. It's a beautiful and important rant, though. Um, and I love that, that you're doing that. I'll give you a whole one. I'll give you a whole one. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's so important at such young ages, too, because when you think about uh, sexual health programming, nobody thinks of uh, those early pre-consent skills, um, but you're absolutely supporting health later on in life if you're, you know, teaching that your no is valid. Like that's so incredibly important and absolutely should be started super young. I even think too about family. I've worked with families um, where if kids get in a fight, they make each other hug, like mm-hmm. the two kids hug. And if there's a kid that's saying like, no, I don't want to hug, good like their body you need to respect that and from like with my kids it's a very early age it's like if they don't want you to touch them don't touch them that is their body their space they have every right to tell you what you are allowed and not allowed to do with that and it starts as soon as they can they can begin to understand that you know um Warner, real fast, you had said something about uh, it's scary for practitioners. You said this a while back about something. I don't remember what the context was, but I think we have so much work to do in this area. I imagine going in and telling parents, we're not going to work on them following your directions because there are things that they're going to need to do to follow those directions. They're going to need skills. Like if you're walking out into the middle of the road, I need you to stop. I need you to turn around and come back, right? There are times when I need them to follow directions. So if we're not targeting that, then what what are we going to do and how is like, yes, they can see how advocacy skills are important, but what about this other part? You know, it's, I, I don't know. Can you talk to like, how would you address that if a practitioner was met with that question? Sure. Absolutely. Well, I feel like this is at the crux of so many of the shifts that we have been making at Empowered um, because we do so frequently see this. um, Clients who are not their own legal guardians, um, who are uh, building skills or working toward being more affirming of their own identities uh, that aren't necessarily approved of by their guardians um, or that self-advocacy is going to be 
more challenging for a guardian to deal with um, uh, than, you know, somebody just like listening to what you say. Uh, And so we have been finding more and more that um, the majority of our hours really need to be like staff, caregiver, parent, et cetera, training hours as opposed to direct hours because so many of the folks that we're supporting um, like need some self-advocacy support, but really it's like shifting that environment. And, you know, the more I think about behavior analysis as a whole, if what we're focused on is shifting the environment, I don't know why we're not spending more time doing that work that has to do with the, the social environment for the client. Um, but even as I say, I don't know why, like, of course I know why it's, it's scary. It's hard. Um, that's the person that ultimately has the control over whether you get to continue providing services or not. Um, and also so many of us, uh, have been, uh, taught to do direct instruction to create programming that works primarily specifically with a client. And we have very, very little access to like family systems theories, uh, to principles around uh, cooperation and community building and deciding, you know, what a family unit wants to look like and helping to facilitate that. Um, and that really is at the heart of so much of what we're doing, though, is is helping a family system grow and examine, you know, what do we want our environment to look like? What do we want our rules to be? What expectations do we want to have? And in what ways do these foster, you know, the the um, autonomy and, uh, you know, the health and the prosperity of our, our kids down the road. But so many of us are entirely unprepared to be holding space for those conversations. Um, and then doubly so when we're talking about sexual health and sexuality um, and gender identity. So it's it's challenging. It really is. Um, but this is a space where I would say to seek out, um, you know, outside continuing education as well. Absolutely. Um, to be looking outside of our field for education as well, because again, there's not a lot on this within our field. Um, and to be really examining um, our own implicit biases and also our own sort of um, uh, viewpoints of our practice. That's a thing I really love from the psychology field that I think is deeply underrepresented in our field is saying like, hey, this is the framework that I work from and this is what I'm bringing to the table because it's there. Absolutely. It's a part of everything we do as we're assisting picking out goals, um, you know, as we're helping families. You know, do I come from a perspective where I'm hoping to make your life easier in the short term by focusing on compliance and education, skill building to be productive in a classroom? That's going to be very different than, you know, am I focused on long-term goals, uh, the autonomy of your client, their ability to self-advocate, you know, their ability to self-identify their own goals and values, even if they don't align with the current goals and values of this family. Entirely different perspectives and naming the fact that we have one versus another, I think is so crucial. Um, If if we're not even willing to do that baseline, then... uh, I think we're really missing a core component of what we as individuals are bringing to our work. That just gave me a lot to think about. Yeah. Um, I want to give us the last uh, buzzword, which is acceptance. And um, we are in April. And so if you work in our field, do you likely know that April is autism acceptance month um, for 
a lot of folks, we uh, know this month as a different uh, name, which it was Autism Awareness Month. Um, Warner, can you talk a little bit about um, the difference between acceptance and awareness? And um, I don't know if you're if you can also talk about it, the difference between like blue and red and different images and icons that we use when we consider um, the work that we do with uh, autistic individuals. Um, yeah. So one of the three or all of the three. Can you talk about <laughs> Absolutely. You know, this is coming back to that conversation that we were having about neurodiversity and also that medical model versus social model. So I highly recommend if you're unfamiliar with some of these issues to uh, Google it, check it out, um, look for actual autistic voices that are talking about their experiences. Um, so many of, again, the well-intentioned but potentially harmful impact organizations um, that do autism-based work were often formed by by parents and caregivers and loved ones of autistic individuals, um, but then are often discounting the voices of actually autistic individuals. And so again, we have very different perspectives and very different goals and values there. Um, so many autistic individuals have noted uh, that awareness <laughs> is not enough. You know, just knowing that we exist is not enough. Um, uh, that um, uh, acceptance is far more crucial. And I personally also advocate for pushing even beyond that, um, you know, to, uh, uh, to autism equity, to autism affirmation, to autism centering, you know, all, all of those, all of those steps beyond just um, um, being accepting, because we still have the potential to cause harms, uh, even if we accept that someone is around us. Um, I, I invite us to continue to push uh, what it looks like as we move toward like really centering the voices of folks actually impacted. Um, but uh, when you do take a look at autistic voices that are talking about this month um, and some of the organizations to support this month, um, you'll note that some people note that things like uh, images like the puzzle piece symbol are pretty offensive, suggesting again that there's something wrong with the individual, that there's something to be solved, <laughs> like a puzzle, uh, something to be fixed. Um, uh, the color blue is so frequently associated with the fact that um, autism is overdiagnosed in cis boys um, and a whole separate conversation we could have about the problematic nature of that, the fact that there's um, a lack of supports given to cisgender females and then also uh, to gender minorities as well who are autistic um, due to underdiagnosis. Um, and again, when we think about diagnosis, again, that's just like a medical model um, and a medical professional saying like, hey, you're exhibiting XYZ behaviors. Um, and that can look really variable across individuals and tends to be overdiagnosed in boys. Um, so uh, a lot of the blue uh, symbology also is something that I think autistic folks you'll see pushing back against as well. Um, so yeah, I would absolutely recommend checking out the Asperger's Autism Network. I would recommend checking out the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. Um, uh, yeah, uh, really any sort of space uh, where folks are going to be given the opportunity to speak to themselves for, for themselves and like to their own values and goals for themselves in the community at large is really crucial. Um, and I believe both of those organizations have, as well have uh, really beautiful information uh, on their websites uh, pertaining to uh, gender identity and sexual minorities in autism as well. So great, great resources to check out. Awesome. We'll have to make sure we put those in the show notes. Yes. Um, thank you so much for this. Um, 
want to move to our homework. I feel like you left us with a lot to think about. Um, but there is one extremely concrete piece of homework that I identified through the show. I normally let Aaron give the homework, but um, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say for our listeners, um, go and look at the work that the Upswing Advocates have done and take that self-assessment. Um, that is your homework. That is something that you know, could be useful in your everyday life and also the work that you do. Um, but there, were, I, that's your piece of homework tonight. But I think there was so much in Lace in this show. And if you're listening, you know that you have a lot more to do than, than the self-assessment, but definitely add that, make that a priority. Um, anything that you want to add, Erin? No, you, you actually gave the homework I was going to give. <laughs> like, that was what I had. <laughs> I was prepped. I was ready. You all right. It. Well, it's all cool. 